0: yours Anne. I do not have we'll a question. work is we'll work instincts into it <laughs> does it show that this recording there for you now yes okay all right so this is the Saturday morning call uh in Thailand and that uh it's Friday evening in the U.S. and um Anna has a question for us today go for it Anna
1: yes could you please elaborate on awareness and acceptance
0: all right both awareness and acceptance are English language words that are somewhat sloppy And because they're sloppy words, in in other words, we use acceptance and, and um, uh, we'll just do them one at a time. We use acceptance in a wide variety of ways. All the way from barely tolerable to absolutely enamored with. Okay, so it's sloppy. It's got a long, long range to it and that if we go back to the poly we'll get a much cleaner understanding okay and um awareness i like that word it's got some some uh usefulness because kind of everybody knows what it means in other words someone who is afraid of spiders is sitting in her chair happily until she becomes aware of the spider and now all of a sudden she's freaked out or let us say that she's repeating her habit of freak out that she had never seen a spider before she probably wouldn't freak out so that awareness issue is highly useful that's in fact what we're going to be practicing is the waking up process, and awareness then could be another word that we could use for investigation. All right. Like, um, let us say the Westerner has newly arrived in Thailand, and he is standing around with some other people that are speaking Thai, and then suddenly he becomes aware that they're talking about him. (laughs) okay so what does that mean there are several things that we can have with that we can all we we call it perking our ears up we start to listen carefully that's what we would mean by awareness it's it can also be sloppy in the sense of um oh A child in bed, you know, children, they really get into sleeping. They know how to do it better than adults. And the child is asleep, and there is some emergency, and the parent comes into the room and grabs the child by the ankle and says, get up, you got to go. The awareness builds slowly. It takes the child a while to get out of bed. We all do that. Now, let's take the exact opposite, and that is that child is now 19 years old. He's he's um, uh, joined the military, and he's in boot camp. And 6 a.m., or three minutes to 6 a.m., the a drill instructor, the DI, comes banging into the room with his baton, hitting any piece of furniture he can reach, yelling at the top of his lungs for everybody to get up, all right? he may in fact hit someone with that baton who's the one who's most likely to get hit with the baton uh
2: least aware person
0: (laughs) the one who is still in bed (laughs) didn't get up didn't do the reverie you know normally what you see in boot camp or at least the movies you'll see that when the di comes in everybody jumps right out of bed they become aware Immediately, with all the noise going on, and they know exactly what to do. Get up and stand at attention beside your bunk, right? Okay. But the 10-year-old doesn't know, no, do that and doesn't have the skills. And so it'll take him a long time to bring himself up to full awareness. We can also see that happening in meditation that our awareness drifts in and out in other words are we watching the thoughts and seeing them are we just kind of blase about them and just let them roll like they've normally been rolling and so this is why it would be a good use to use the word aware if in fact uh we are um doing what we're talking about technically in uh, the Eightfold Noble Path Um, and that in fact in this regard you can say that the strength then of the awareness has to do with the strength of the waking up and so it's the sati sati needs to be strong that's one of the things that doesn't is not well covered in either the sutras or in any of the western uh systems but uh success in practice of meditation has to do with the strength of sati waking up an example of that would be when we wake up in the bed in the mornings we don't get up we wake up and what's the first thing that we're aware of is basically the body the bed the sheets not the bed in a big square thing that you think of in the bed in the nine but this thing that i'm laying on right here in front of me this bed um close contact um so we we that's actually a good thing to practice in the morning and we can remember it when we go to sleep at night when we're laying in bed i'm going to be very very awake when i wake up the first thing that i notice i'm going to notice that i notice it okay it's a very good practice you can think about it now when you wake up what's the first thing that you know how do you know that you're awake when you wake up is it sensory stimulus is it input is it uh slowly coming out of a dreamy state into reality so this is a good point um we can practice that just when we wake up in the morning to, uh, to start recognizing that we have some control and some power over our wakefulness, over our ability to, uh, to be aware. Um, or um, another word that we can use is attention. And we often use it in the word uh, with the way of paying attention. Well, paying attention then would be right noble effort to do an investigation, to pay attention, to look, to investigate. And that you can see is actually closely related then to awareness or that waking up process. So these these English language words we have, we can begin to understand what the Buddha was getting at when he's using words sati, ditti, and virya. Sati, to wake up. Uh, Ditti, to investigate, to see, to know, and to take the right effort to make a change to that. To make a right effort to, in fact, discriminate between what is wholesome and not wholesome. The actual discrimination of figuring out whether this is wholesome or not wholesome is most of the work. After we come to the conclusion, it's easy. Let us say that you were walking into a dark room and there was an object on the floor that could either be a snake or a belt. The obvious thing we're going to do is we're going to choose the dangerous one, the snake. But once we take the effort to do an investigation to recognize that it's not a snake, it's just a belt. That's most of the work because after we recognize that it's just a belt and not a snake, there's nothing hardly left to do. And so, this is um, uh, a way of looking at it from the perspective, but in the West, they use these words. Without giving clear definitions, I uh, hint the question that you're asking. So, awareness and um, um, acceptance were the two words that you were using. Let's talk about some more about acceptance. Um, I ran across something last night when we were doing the the Skype. Uh, Michael, I think that you read what I what I was saying about Christianity is all around uh people feeling comfortable and and well because god loves them i mean the christian church is just really heavy duty and god loves you kind of stuff right especially in evangelicals and whatnot uh, but more in the buddhist context looking at it from not a god who loves me because he's conscious the way that a human is but rather that we live in an environment that is suitable for us enough because here we are in it. That if in fact the temperature of the planet Earth was like 600 degrees and whatever kind of creatures we would be, we would be comfortable at 600 degrees. And when we understand it like that, we understand that we are in this environment and it's pretty big and we're pretty small and we fit into it very well and if we didn't fit into it very well then uh the big it would be kind of okay without us but we can't be okay without our environment we need the air to breathe we need the food to eat we need the sunshine we need so many things and Based upon uh, an old musical of the 1950s, the name of it or the title of it was All the Best Things in Life are Free. The air that you breathe is freely available. You don't have to pay tax to the government on each breath you take. Your ability to think, your ability to stand and walk around, your ability to eat food. The food itself may be expensive, depending upon how stupid you are and what kind of fancy restaurant you're in, rather than out on the street. But the ability to eat, to nourish oneself, and to do all of those things, all of that is free. The best things in life are free. Now, why am I going down this path? is is because that gives us kind of a duty. I'm talking about the duty to the Dhamma. And part of the duty to the Dhamma is to accept the Dhamma rather than fighting with it. And so in the Buddhist context, instead of the Christian being loved by God, here it's the other way around. We have a duty to the Dhamma. We have a duty. In fact, the duty would be to love our environment. To love God, not God love us, but we love God. And what is God? It's everything else other than me. And when I start being not me anymore, that I really do fit into the environment, then there's just, let us say, an awareness of being God. Because you're in God. You're right in the middle of it. You're in your environment. Now, the next point that we have to understand is, is that though uh, we intellectually understand that the universe is vast, uncomprehensibly vast, but in another way of thinking and a more primitive way of thinking, the planet Earth itself is vast. Even the best travelers who are traveling all the time, they don't make it very far because of the vastness of the planet Earth and the vastness of humanity and the vastness of culture and the vastness of uh, knowledge it's just so vast. But that world that I'm talking about is actually an intellectualized version of the reality. In other words, when I talk about the world uh, and the vastness of the planet Earth and cultures and all of that, Those are merely concepts. The real world is the world that comes in through our senses. The things you can see, the things you can touch, the things you can taste, the things that touch you. The things that come to the body and the experience of the body, including the feelings and the thoughts. This is our world. And so uh, in the concept of Metta, when we say may all beings be happy, that almost always becomes an intellectualization or a a concept of all of those vast people out there that I want to be happy. And the reality is, is that we don't have much control over that. In fact, it's nothing but a concept in our own mind. (laughs) When I want to say... May all beings be happy. I'm talking about the lady over there, the dog on the floor, the dog over there, the porch here, <laughs> the 10 year old is sleeping in bed. they unaware of everything. These are the people who are in my world. And so that's where I have an obligation, not just to want them to be happy, but to make sure it happens. So it's my love of God rather than God loves me is the, is the the distinction. Now, what that means, then, that's a bigger way of talking about uh, acceptance. It, it's not just acceptance in, um, in that regard. It's more like seeing a long lost brother 50 or 60 feet away and we run towards each other, putting ourselves into a great big embrace. Okay, that's the kind of acceptance that is really nurturing and really beneficial. As opposed to a toleration. Oh, I don't like it, but I won't say anything. So, um, the word acceptance may not be, um, let us say, Um, Pointing exactly in the right direction and we want to be able to point in the direction of. um, A full hearted loving acceptance. That includes acceptance of all of the warts and all of the bad sides and everything like that, that when we actually can love ourselves. That means that we accept ourselves with all of our poibles all of our problems because if there's something in like inside of me that i don't like that just leaves me in a state of not liking but when i accept the things that i am accept the past accept it in the sense of being happy that it's there a good way of talking about the past is is that the past was marvelous enough to keep you alive up until right now Your past was successful. You're still alive. So why not congratulate it? Thank you for keeping me alive. All that stuff in the past, whatever happened, didn't kill me. And so we're still alive. That's a different kind of acceptance rather than trying to get over it, but then being, um, let us say, hounded by or sometimes spooked out by old memories of things that have happened in the past that we know that we've been screw ups everybody is a screw up there's no such thing as perfection and the more rules we have about how things are supposed to be the more rules we're going to break and so uh that's where the western mind comes in is to the point that the um we don't accept ourselves. We've got too many rules. We've got too many supposed tos. We've got a concept of what the world is like out there, and that we've got to fit into that world. The reality is, is that that world out there is just a concept. The world that we got to fit into is this world, the one we're right here in, right here, right now. This is the world that we want to fit into. And if we are aware of that, we can fit in quite well. So the fitting in process is basically the acceptance. It's learning to fit into your environment. Learning to fit in so well that, in fact, you become uh, at one with it. This is what the, the, the word atonement means. Is To atone means to stop the separation, stop the breakage, go heal it, and atone or become at one with it again. Right? So this is the whole quantity that we're looking for, and yet we've got this mediocre term acceptance rather than better terms starting with fitting in, in love with, Completely becoming at one with then that would be the acceptance. Now, it's often uh, used in the sense of choiceless. I've heard the term choiceless awareness. All right. Guess what? Buddha didn't teach choiceless. We've always got choices. And that we're making those choices often ignorantly in the sense that we're making choice, but we don't even know that we're making a choice. The guy who gets up and goes to work every day, he's making a choice every day. He's making a choice about what shirt he puts on, what shoes he puts on, how long it takes him to get to work and all of that kind of stuff. We make thousands of choices a day and we're not even aware of them because we get into such a habit. So what we're going to actually now do is disrupt those habits in many, many different happy ways. We can find ways of playing with the world. So as we disrupt our habits, an example would be, uh, one of the ways that we have habits is how we use our arms. We get very, very, um, let us say, locked into certain kind of, uh, gestures that, um, are actually quite easy to see when we're talking. That when people talk, they're, they're talking with their hands. And when they're listening, they're often moving their hands and moving them mindlessly. Choicefully, but the choice was mindless. That we, when we become agitated, that the body will shake with that excess energy and we often don't even know it. And so, one of the qualities of becoming aware is, is to become aware of the body, aware of what the hands are doing, aware of the face, and that the uh, uh, the touching of the face is actually um, something to become aware of. For instance, a little while ago, uh, this right eye has been bothering for several days, and it's tearing up, and so I sometimes come and rub the tears out. Being gentle with the eye, right like that. That's a little bit rubbing there, but being very, very gentle with the eye to take the tear out. Okay. So uh, becoming um, environmentally aware, aware of our environment in a loving, nurturing kind of way, as opposed to the choiceless awareness that we have, which is automatic that in fact. It's choiceless simply because it's pure ignorance we're just ignorant of all the choices that we make once we become aware of those choices um uh i mean i'm looking for a word out of the sutra for a moment let me get it um attention This is the word that I'm looking for. Paying attention, wise attention. Is paying attention to the things that are worthy of being attended to. And so we pay attention, but often people are paying attention to the wrong things, paying attention to their concepts their plans, paying attention to things that are not very important. Another thing that people will often pay attention to, which is completely irrelevant, is does God exist? What is enlightenment? What is nirvana? All of these kind of conceptualized things that people have. Hello, Avery, good to see you. So when we pay wise attention, that means that what we attend to is important. Wise attention is paying attention to the things that are worth paying attention to and unwise attention means that we're paying attention to things that are not worthy of paying attention to. In the sutta the Buddha talks about and gives a list of of things that are unworthy of paying attention to and defines it in the way of we can tell whether something is worthy of paying attention to because uh we get benefit from that and that if we pay attention to the things that are not worthy of attention then we wind up in a thicket of views we have we wind up with a whole bunch of ideas about what things are supposed to be like but we don't make much changes in fact we're caught in the same thicket of views so what is yes go ahead michael
2: um i was just going to add a little bit or Just um, today, today I was actually thinking about um, the word you're referring to that's translated as wise attention, um, which in Pali is "yoni so Manisikara. And I was thinking about the fact that uh, Yoni, the word Yoni, uh, means uh, it refers to the womb and the birth canal in Sanskrit and Pali. And so the the word uh, actually indicates um, attending to the origination of things and um so i'll just kind of that so that's kind of what the buddha defines as as wise attention is is attending to the origination of of whatever is arising like noticing its origin um and i just thought i would throw that out there just to add
0: to what you're saying right except that um we have to make sure that we're not talking about it from the sense of big bang or um 1066 norman invasion of england (laughs) Or what happened in the Catholic Church, or any of those kind of big oriented things out of history,
2: or like, if like rather irritation. the cause
0: and effect of what's happening right now. If I'm in like, this mood, how did I get into this mood? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. All right.
2: The, the way that I was gonna was go that that every every mind moment there's two paths that arise, and one path is the path of suffering, and the other path is the path of non-suffering um and so just continuously my next
0: line (laughs) what was that i said you're stealing my next line that's where we're going with this
2: okay we're in sync today
0: (laughs) Uh yeah really so um the things that are unworthy of attention or wise attention he's actually got the list of who am i what mm-hmm. will I be in the future? How do I get from where I am now to get there? Who was I in the past? All of this stuff that people uh, are trying to figure out in their lives, the Buddha says these things are not worthy of, of, of attention. And in fact, we could even get our minds in a knot in the sense of um, the, uh, the six things of does self see the self as self? Does no self see the self as self or no self? Does no self see self, etc. like that? I mean, you can just get all twisted up in all kinds of things in the mind like that when we are paying attention to I, me, mine, who am I, what is amata, and all of that kind of stuff. And it's very interesting because that seems to be the one issue that's come out of Buddhism that the Westerners have really, really latched on to. And I think that it partly has to do with the religions that have a soul. Because if you've got a soul, then you're well-defined. God defined who you are, and that's it. End of story. But if there is no soul, now things get really wishy-washy, and we got to go get some structure into this. And so we're all interested in what is anatta and... um how does self see the self or how does the no self show you the self and all of this kind of stuff um is there a self and basically what the buddha was really talking about is is that it's not the birth of the self it's the birth of dukkha and then in fact what is wise attention is is this dukkha or not that in fact the way that it's expressed, this is out of a uh, Saba Asaba Sutta number two. I think you already know that, but I'll say it for the group. The Saba Asava Sutta states All of this stuff I've been following along of what is wise attention and the benefits of wise attention and, uh, what is unwise attention leading to a thicket of views and all of that kind of stuff gets down to then his definition of what is wise attention and wise attention is this, this is suffering. This is the cause of suffering. This is the end of suffering, and this is the way to get out of it. This, 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 or in the Pali, it would be tatata, or thusness. This is what's going on right here, right now. And when we can see the dukkha right here, right now, we can see its cause, which is what you were talking about. And then we can see the end of it right then and there. And we've got a method for doing that. And... The Buddha further states in that same paragraph that when we can see this is Dukkha, this is the cause of Dukkha, this is the end of Dukkha, and this is the way to get to it, we actually then destroy that personality view that was done in the first part of the Sutta about who am I? Because we recognize that that the Dukkha and my experience with the Dukkha defines who I am. He further talks about it in the sense of not just personality view, but sila bhata paramasa, or our attachments to rights, rules, and rituals is the way that it's stated in the suttas. But no, it's not necessarily attachment to rights, rules, and rituals. It's that these things are instinctual. We have the ability to attach to rights, rules, and rituals. It comes out of the uh, uh, the instincts the 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 instinctual hurting that we do wanting to socialize, etc. like that um, is something that comes naturally to us It's built into the DNA. So the ability to latch on to rules is the DNA, which rules we um, attach to is culture is from our parents. And so we build all of that stuff up it's, think about it as is that we've got several buckets for our D, that we get from our dna and one of them is the the nesting instinct bucket the question is what kind of rights rules and rituals are you going to be putting into that bucket little examples like you got to make your bed in the morning a lot of people have that rule a lot of people don't and if they break the rule I'm supposed to uh, 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 make my bed before I leave in the day. I'm going to have some kind of trouble. That, in fact, back to the boot camp in the military, if you don't make your bed when you get up, you're going to have hell to pay. The DI is going to see that, right? Well, mommy and daddy in some cultures are like that. So that's just one example of making the bed up. But we have 10,000 different rules that we put in there. I, you could get the imagination that it comes from a baby monkey that is high in the nest with all of the other monkeys uh up in the tree and this baby monkey has got some sort of ailment or whatever and it just won't shut up it's just screeching and screeching and mom's putting her, uh, her hand over the mouth And eventually one of the big gorillas, possibly the alpha, is going to take that infant and throw him out of the nest. He would rather that infant be eaten on the ground by the leopard than the whole family get eaten by the leopard because the leopard knows where the nest is. So this nesting instinct is for the protection of the group. This instinct actually then becomes uh, uh, very valuable in our culture in the sense of society of collecting together nurturing one another caring for each other families all of this is part of that nesting instinct that we have and it's quite valuable when it's used wisely and it can be a hell on earth when we manage it unwisely and how do we do that by not paying attention to the suffering that we're causing not paying attention to the dukkha not paying attention to how we're, we're messing up, not paying attention to how we get messed up by other people's behavior that are within the nest. So this is why we have so many rules in society. Little examples like in some places, they drive on the left side of the road and on other places, they drive on the right side of the road, right? So if they drive on the right side of the road, when they're walking down the, uh, the corridor in the hallway, they do the same thing. But there's no rule to it. We just happen to take that one rule from this and put it and apply it over here. So when we recognize that almost all of what we're doing is wrapped up in the set of rules that we have, then we begin to understand that our personality is actually defined by what we think it we should be. It's our rule systems. We are taught that you're supposed to be this way. And so you wind up being just that way. In fact, the one that seems to be the most surprising of all is the young men really hate their dads, especially in the Western culture. Think that the guy's an idiot. And then when they are 40, they wake up to the fact that put the, yeah, but they're just like him. <laughs> Why? Because they learned what they are from watching their dad. And so we often take on the same personality and the traits that our dad has, even though when we're young and picking up those traits, we don't like him at all.
2: That's an added benefit of stream entry. You don't become like your dad.
0: (laughs) Yes, that's a good awareness. Don't be like him because that's where you're picking up all your rules. That's where you're getting. Not all the rules, but I mean quite a lot of them. So the the paramasa and the personality vu work together as two fetters that bind us and grind us into who we are. And then that kind of gets fixed, you know, habits get set in. And when those habits get set in thoroughly, it becomes our destiny. And that a lot of people think that the destiny comes from God. Oh no, it doesn't, not really. Not the big God, the little God. It comes from mom and dad and the house and the teachers and the community that you're around. The little child is not influenced by Putin. The little child is not influenced by SpaceX. The little child is not influenced by uh, the church very much. The child is influenced by his environment. And so this is what defines who we are when we're children. And some reason or another, we kind of stay living in the environment that we were raised in, rather than actually appreciating the environment that we're in right here, right now. That we get into those kind of habits. And so this investigation of, is this dukkha or not? is the real investigation. Is this dukkha? Where did it come from? Can I get out of it right now? Well, I can. I've got the way to do that. We do that over and over and over and over again. And in fact, how we do that is by looking at this thought. Is this thought wholesome or not? Is this thought worth having or not? This is wise attention. Is this thought dukkha? Does it lead to dukkha? Thinking about, let's say the example is, is that I had an argument with my aunt Susie yesterday, and here I am stewing over that argument. I should have said this, I should have said that, while when I see her again, I'm going to really let her hold it, right? We're actually planning on having a great big fight. And we don't even know that because we think that it's pleasant to eventually figure out what I should have said to her yesterday. And when we really wake up we can wake up to say wait a minute having an argument with someone now that i had an argument with yesterday is completely unbeneficial right now i can do a whole lot of other things better than this continuing that argument and so we put that argument aside we can recognize no i don't have to finish the argument but it's a rule. you got to finish the argument. You're supposed to win. We learned that from Papa, Daddy told me. I mean, I remember arguing with him and he would just argue and argue and argue until I got tired of it. And so that's my model. Now I've got to argue and argue and argue with people until they get tired and then I win. And that's the rule that we make. <laughs> and that's a very, very common one. We all have that, I think, uh, as, a, as a rule that we're supposed to win arguments. And when we take better rules, rules based upon dukkha, dukkha, and we could actually say that the best substitute for all of those rules that we've had all our lives is to be awake and aware of what's happening right now and then deal with that. Or going back to where we're talking about in the sutta, it's dukkha, dukkha, and But that's the rule. The rule is, is to watch what's going on and, and figure out what's our next step that's going to be wholesome. Right here, right now, walking down the road. I'm about to put my foot in that place. And I say, wait a minute, there's a spike there or a rock. I don't have to step there. I can step beside it. So this whole point of wise attention then brings us to see in a way that we can avoid it immediately. Not, not dukkha next month. This dukkha, right here, right now. This is the only one that we need to be aware of in the present moment. Well, see, we've got so many problems that are going to happen in the future. i got a plan for the future, man. I mean, i got stock, and I've got to go catch that train, and I've got to go see those people, and I've got to go pay that bill, and all of this kind of stuff. And we wind up in that sort of mentality, like life's a drudgery. I've got to fit in, but I don't want to. And the way that we can change that is by recognizing that I've got a choice about how I feel about things. that I don't have to see everything as Dukkha. I could go take care of those bills and catch that train and do all of that stuff happily, it's up to me. But I got to get the mind out of the mindset that everything is a drudgery, everything is a responsibility, everything has to be done. That in fact, when we have that mentality, the Buddha talks about it in the sense of the four woeful states and this is what he referred to as a dumb animal. The animal state is the, the domestic animal has to do what it's told to do, and it has no recourse and no reward. How many of us feel that way in our lives? Everybody feels that way sometimes. Oh, so, well, I've just got to go do it. It's not because I'm being, um, let us say, eagerly prancing my way to it. It's that I'm being pushed to go do it. That pushing that we have inside, okay? And when we begin to understand that, oh no, it's not that pushing that's going to keep me going. It's the fact that I can actually enjoy what we're going through because there's no dukkha to it. So that point of this is dukkha, this is what it's causing it. And this is the end of it right here, right now these three things are uh, that that little sequence there the four noble truths paying attention to the four noble truths on a regular basis all the time wake up and pay attention wake up and pay attention to the four noble truths find the dukkha. figure out what the point of it was not not what caused this dukkha 10 years ago but what's causing it right now an example of that is, is that in Asia, it happens a lot, it happens in India, it happens in Nepal, uh, That it happens with earthquakes. But sometimes they just put too many water towers on top of the building and then with nothing that they can figure out, the whole building will collapse. And everybody will say, oh, that's because the guy who built the building used bad concrete. He was cutting corners the building wasn't up to scratch in the first place the answer to that is well it lasted for 10 20 years that must not be the issue the issue is all these new water tanks on the top okay so it has to do then with the cause and effect is this cause and this effect not some original cause and yet we in our society we get used to looking at original causes Then in fact, the atheists and the Christians will go to war with each other over original causes and nobody knows the answers to what happened originally. Much of it is just speculation, but we can figure out what's happening and the causes and effects that are in this immediate moment. When we do that, we begin to say, wait a minute, I'm beginning to see that things are different now, and that's when we get the third fetter. And that is the knowledge and vision of what is and is not the path. The knowledge and vision of what is and is not the path the, the, uh, means that we could see that, oh, the dukkha is right here, right now. That's what to be seen. Oh, the cause of the dukkha is right here, right now. It can be seen. Oh, the relief from that dukkha is right here, right now. It can be seen. And the method to do that is by waking up, taking a look, seeing the dukkha, and making the change to come out of it. Over and over and over again, and that's where that third veteran then comes to the point of the knowledge and vision is what is the path right now. And what is not the path, back then and out in the future. That's not the path. Another way of looking at that is is that whatever we've been doing was not the path. (laughs) But practicing, watching this present moment, that is the path. And so this statement of knowledge and vision of what is and is not the path is a very, very important point. That's actually a change, and sometimes it's referred to as the change of lineage. You are no longer in the lineage of... The ordinary people, the ordinary mind, the one that's looking for original causes and is looking for big issues and looking for problems to solve and all of that. And we change it to the lineage of the Buddha. Our lineage is is that let's look at what's happening right here, right now, and make a change. This is the path. That process, that change of lineage actually is um also referred to as uh, the sota but there's a little bit more to it than that that's only the earth let us say that that is the uh the, uh the path the step of the soda pine not the full-blown fruit of the soda pine It's because why? Because there's more to it than that. The next step, by the way, after step three of knowledge and vision of what is and is not the path, that's when we begin to accept ourselves with our old habits the way that we are. We start to nurture ourselves. In the suttas, it talks about, uh, most specifically, it's referring to the Paddy Monk ceremony, where before the ceremony is done, Every young monk will go to a senior monk and confess what he's done wrong in the past couple of weeks, or not, depending upon when they do the patty more. And so that actually is a kind of confession, but it's sure different than the Catholic confession. Why is that? because the Catholic Confession ends with a penance. It ends with a job to do. It ends with a price to pay. It does not end with the way that Jesus would end it when he says, go and sin no more. So within the Buddhist context for the monk, when they're going through this, it's, it's um, the confession is getting stuff off of our chest with the intention of being finished with it, with the intention of letting it go, with the intention of um, being able to do the right thing. But then we make a mistake again. Never mind, we'll go back and we'll get it again. And we keep coming back and coming back and coming back to the right way. But in the process of doing that, we accept ourselves warts and all. We accept our problems. We accept that we're only human, just like everybody else. That's hard to take for us who are prideful. I mean, I'm, I'm yeah, go ahead.
2: Um, wanted to add just the thought, um, my phone is getting close to dying, but uh, just in relation to what you're saying about doubt and acceptance or that third fetter of, of knowing what's the path and not the path and, and not needing to answer all these questions, um, is uh there's there's a saying in in one of the old uh upanishads um they say that uh, god is unknown and unknowable and you know the word god um whatever it, its implications are but my understanding is that that it it it's a different it gave me a different understanding of what that sadha that faith or confidence is which is to basically accept what is unknown and unknowable and just have confidence in what isn't knowable in this moment and pretty much the ability to let that all go and to just rest in the the clear awareness of this moment of you know what is dukkha and what is the way out of dukkha and um that understanding really helped sort of turn that fetter of doubt on its head for me, just the ability to kind of let go of all that is unknown and unknowable mm-hmm. and, that faith and that that not knowing, so to speak. It's, it was kind of an ironic understanding that, that I guess you can say.
0: Yeah, that's an excellent point. This third fetter that we're talking about, the knowledge and vision of what is the path and is not the path, actually is referred to often as the fetter of doubt. Why is that? Well, basically what that means is, is that better, uh, that, that not only is this doubt in the moment, in the mind is a hindrance. It's got that underlying tendency of not knowing and being afraid because we don't know. It comes out of the self-preservation instinct that if I don't know where the dangers are around me, I'm dead that if that uh, uh, alligator comes jumping out of the water where I'm drinking, I better move out of the way. I better be aware of what's in the water around me. And if I'm not, I'm going to get eaten. So that's part of our instinct and we're built in that way. And so we kind of want to know so that we'll know where the dangers are. And the answer to that is, is let's get ourselves in a state in a place where we're not in danger. And because there's no fear now, we don't have to go make stuff up about what we might be afraid or what could happen. So in that way, you could say then that all questions about the Dhamma is coming out of that doubt that is underlying based of fear. And that uh, talking to the teacher on the internet and whatnot, that's the time to ask questions. But when we're sitting down alone, That's not the time to ask questions because the practice itself is so easy. It's so simple that there is really not that much to it. Easy enough to remember there's nothing to doubt. Wake up, take a look, make a change, and congratulate yourself. We just keep doing that over and over and over again. And any time that we say, well, am I doing it right? The answer to that is wake up. Look at the fact that you're asking a stupid question. You don't have to ask that stupid question. Am I doing it right? All I have to do is relax and then I'm doing it right. And so we have, uh, especially in the beginning, and it seems to happen a lot in the Goenka retreats. where People get just all kinds of doubt. Am I doing it right? This is hard. Is this a good teacher? Why am I doing this? I want out of here. All of that kind of stuff. It's just painful in the mind and people don't see that if you'd recognize that all of these doubts and all of these worries and all of these fears and will i get what i want and any of that kind of stuff is painful and all we have to do is say everything's all right everything is fine there is no danger and then we can relax into that so this is why both awareness attention um and acceptance Come in to play when we're doing it correctly, but these words are just kind of buzzwords or noise words for the average Buddhist because they really don't know how to apply it. And choiceless awareness is certainly incorrect because we're making choices all the time. The thing to do is to become aware of those choices. And then so
2: awareness, get... rather than choiceless. <laughs> Pardon. Awareness of choices rather than choiceless awareness,
0: right? Aware of the choices so that we can improve those choices. We can make some decisions here that we don't have to keep going down the same. Let us say going down the same bumpy road over and over and over again. Not really liking it, but kind of accepting it. I've got to go down this bumpy road because it's going to take me where I want to go. And so I accept that bumpy road.
2: Yeah, uh, thank you so much, Domerado, and everyone. I, I have to get off the call, but I enjoyed it. The... Excellent. You have right. a good day and a good evening uh, wherever you are. <laughs> we'll
0: All see. Right. you. Thank you, Michael, for your uh, input and uh, presence. We'll see you.
3: We'll see you. I'll see. You. There's something interesting that I wanted to talk about for a second.
0: All right, Avery, go ahead.
3: Well, um, I've been noticing, like, the mind, it, I, I don't know if it's, like, okay, so you know, you know how a cat will, like, relax, and then as soon as the slightest sound is heard by it, it'll perk up, and then it'll, like, be on high alert, like, from, like, it can be relaxing and chilling and purring and whatever, and then it hears something and it immediately gets alert. Mm hmm. Yeah,
0: that's what we're going to start practicing.
3: It's interesting. Yeah. Uh, But I kept thinking, like, if that's like, if fear is such a big, like prominent emotion to people and animals, because it's like a baked in thing, like humans are animals, then it's kind of unnatural to be in a state where you are totally relaxed because the brain is always like oh you got to fear this you got to fear that you gotta that's worry the habit this. we
0: get into we don't have to be in that habit but that's the habit we get to uh coming out of the dna because it in the really really old days when we lived in the jungle then dangers were imminent but even by the time of the buddha they had built enough society so that danger was not imminent on a moment-by-moment basis, on a regular, all-the-time basis. That, in fact, the times, Avery, that you've actually had real danger, let us say today, you've probably been in real danger today only once or twice or maybe not even at all, not even one time. But there was a time when humans would have to deal with 100 or 200 dangers a day. That mechanism of dealing with 100 or 200 dangers a day means that now we misapply that danger mode so that things that are not really dangerous at all, we feel that they're dangerous. An example of that would be uh, at school and the bully walks around the corner and the 14-year-old kid is standing there and he becomes afraid of the bully as if the bully was going to kill him. I mean, that's the feeling. And so he freezes like the instinct. He's there waiting for the bully to come get him. The right thing to do for that 14 year old kid to sees that bully is just walk right into the direction of the bully and walk right past him. And if the bully tries to engage with him, he just says, I'm, I'm in a hurry now and just leave. Fleeing would be the right thing to do rather than freezing. You certainly don't want to fight with him, but just get out. But the better thing to do is to not be afraid of the bully at all. When you see the bully, you and say, hi, I'm glad to see you. And so we, we don't make enough choices because we don't know that we've got the choices, we follow the feelings instead. And so no, but the animals
1: still animals still uh, in danger. So if uh, the bully gonna follow their animal instincts, so they're gonna be aggressive. Right animals yeah. still so we cannot really be so enlightened and do not care. We need to be aware that most of the creatures still in the animalistic state and they are gonna be aggressive because whatever mechanism happened to them.
0: Well, one of the things about bullies is, is that they, they themselves are afraid and they don't want to have to get caught or have to deal with it in a open way. So that means then, excuse me, if, if the kid, the 14 year old is way out in the woods or someplace away from people and the bully comes up, that's dangerous. But in the, I made the point about being in the hallway of the school because there the bully is not going to become violent. Because he's afraid that he's going to get caught being violent. And so I set that situation directly. um, And the thing to do is don't be the bully's mark, be his friend instead. But it's hard to do that when we're afraid. And so we have to practice to stop being afraid. And this is part of what we're doing in seclusion when we're doing Anapanasati. We get ourselves into a real situation that's actually not fearful. There is no danger. I am not in any danger on this porch. There are nothing. There's nothing that can happen to me here and I know that. So I feel completely safe. If you can feel completely safe And get into the habit of feeling completely safe. And then monitor and make sure that you're feeling really safe. This is back to that issue that we were talking about earlier in the talk. About uh, uh, pay attention. Pay attention to your fear. Pay attention to what's going on. Because only then do you have a choice about what you're going to do about it. Because if we're not paying attention, if we're not aware... If we don't see these causes then in fact it's quite possible for the bully to come around the corner and the kid freezes and he doesn't even know what's going on he just loses it and because of that he doesn't even know what's going on around him that this is that freeze uh, that we could get into when we're when we're in afraid. this is exactly why in some cases a rabbit will defend itself fiercely and at other times like when the fox drags that uh, rabbit out of the hole the 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 rabbit will go limp i've lost i accept my fate now if i'm the rabbit that's being pulled out of the hole by the fox that fox has got a problem with his nose you gotta i mean it's going to be a really bloody nose and you better watch out because he might be blind really soon too in other words i'm going to defend myself i'm not going to be um in the situation of uh, being in that state of freeze. And but these are um, in the in intense situations when there's real dangers. Let's go back to how are we going to deal it when there actually is no real danger. Why do we perceive that there is dangers when there's not any? Why do we have thoughts of dangerous things? Why do people talk and then say there ought to be a law, and there probably already is a law, is because they're a, they're afraid and they're not aware of their be of their fear. And so, um, practicing, watching the fears come up. I mean, students talk about it to me in words like I feel tense, I'm anxious, uptight. Sometimes they'll even use the word panic. Which is really just another word for various levels of fear. And we could deal with that fear by telling ourselves, there's no reason to panic right now. There's nothing to be aware of. Let me panic when it's time to panic. And let's not panic now. There's no reason to panic just because I thought of something to panic about. There's no reason to panic. I can come out of that panic by breathing well, by changing those panic thoughts into non-panic thoughts like there really is no problem right now i'm i'm safe i'm secure i'm sound no problems no worries no place to go nothing to do and everything is hunky-dory and we need to keep talking yeah go ahead avery
3: oh yeah um i've heard that when people practice they uh i've heard people say that it's actually quite enjoyable to notice like when things that are Dukkha, such as doubt, even fear come up. And then they like, they're like, oh, old friend, like you're here now, all right. And then when they do that, they can go back to like, can you like, feel like what fear feels like in the body kind of?
0: What does
3: What does it often feel like to you guys?
0: I'm okay. curious. Uh, let us put together fear and anger because anger in the body is easier to see. In fact, when people are angry, everybody in the room knows it except the guy who is angry. All right, you can listen to the sound of your voice. Are you speaking fast or are you speaking loud? That's an indication. Also, when people are angry, they will get tense around the the neck, but that, that tension is not really angry, it's fear. That, in fact, uh, it, it comes out of the primitive state that the neck is the most vulnerable place that the human has. If you look at old military costumes, uh, armor and things like that, the Japanese um, and even in the Thai, they'll have a great big thing up here uh, to keep the sword from being able to strike them in the neck. So the neck area has been a very, very... A sensitive place. That's what the uh, going for the juggler, getting your throat slit. When lions attack, the the reason that a, that male lions have such a great big hairy big mane is that mane will actually protect the lions from other lions because you know male lions they get into fights, and and, and uh, one of the determining factors is how big the mane is. Because if the mane is really, really thick and really, really hairy, then the opponent doesn't get much uh, chance to get his jaws all the way into the throat. Look at the way that we dress. I mean, look at the fact that, uh, that the collar that you have on your shirt is reminiscent of this protective area around the neck because you can throw that collar up for protection around the throat. Okay, so. This is where all of that stuff comes from, because it's well known in in, uh, human culture um, to protect the neck. And so we, when we're afraid, we'll raise our shoulders up like this. If you catch a kid doing something in school, you can tell because their shoulders will rise up. So, uh, the whole part of Anapanasati and getting used to watching the breathing is to relax the body to get to know the body to find out where those tensions are so that we can relax. Now, one of the things that I remember practicing back in the 1970s when I was uh, studying psychology were various behaviors that indicated various things. And that one of them uh, that I remember was the wrinkled brow. When people raise their eyes and they get big wrinkles up here As you'll notice, I can't even wrinkle my brow anymore. I can't do it. It's been so relaxed for so long, I can't even do it. But some people you can see in the, yeah, right. Um, Many people will have those great big lines on their uh, face because they're in the state of confusion. They're in the state of surprise. And often, it's associated with lying. And are they going to be able to get away with the lie? So uh, this is called, by the way, in, in uh, TA, this is called a, a please me driver. It's where after somebody tells a lie, they'll shake their head like that. They'll raise their brow in, um, uh, in a questioning kind of mode with uh, the underlying point is, do you believe this lie I'm telling you? And so there's many different ways that you can tell, many different postures that people will take when, when they're lying. Uh, they also will um, um, introduce the lie with a new catchphrase. One of the popular one is, this is no lie, and then they'll lie to you. Uh, so knowing when you lie is a good thing that we can catch that we're lying we can catch when we're loud we can catch when uh we're anxious that in fact you can see the anxiety as an agitation of the body frivolous movements uh fidgeting um and so how we can do deal with that avery based upon our last conversation is again by watching what we're doing notice the body from the outside and see the agitation, the worries, the fidgets, the, uh, the movements of the hands, et cetera, like that. And then go on to the inside and start looking at it, especially in the area of the chest. Is there any tensions in the chest? Uh, because of the human anatomy with the lungs and the heart and all the organs placed where they are, there seems to be a huge amount of blood that is pooled into this part of the body here from uh, the the top part of the belly up into the mid chest area, around the spleen. And so watching that area of the body, um, because uh, when the blood has either adrenaline in it or a lot of carbon dioxide, the blood actually feels different than when it's uh, uh, properly maintained. There's no adrenaline and uh, there's not much carbon dioxide. And so you can actually feel this if you start paying attention that when you're breathing in is there any tightness in that um full in breath can you breathe into the tension can you breathe into the anxiety can you actually uh notice that it can be uh, adjusted moved around that it comes greater when you're taking a very deep in breath and when you relax on an out breath the uh the tension and the chest goes away so these are the various things that we do this is um uh, anapanasati actually um the first part of it in the sense of the body the feelings the mind and the mind's objects this body part is very very important part of the practice of meditation to become aware of what the body is doing aware of the movements aware of the tensions aware of the um Distress, uh, tight muscles, and that a good thing to do uh, if you have tensions in the neck, tensions in the is to actually give yourself a massage. Move your head, roll it around, find out where the where the problems are, where the tensions are, so that you can relax them. Many times students will talk about having headaches when they're meditating. Now the question is, is is the habit of the headaches associated with the meditation or are they doing something in the meditation that creates the, the tension or is it something that they become aware of because they're paying attention now? But in both cases, it generally has to do with the fact that the head and the face have more blood coming in. But the tensions in the neck and the capillaries and all of that means that now the blood pressure can't get back down. And so um, the head fills with uh, blood that's not being used very well because the new blood can't get in and the old blood can't get out through the neck. So rolling the head around, giving the neck some uh, freedom, getting the tension out of the neck and doing that kind of stuff, will often eliminate a headache or uh, heavy peelings in the face is because the body's not relaxed. Relaxing the neck, relaxing the shoulders, playing with it. An example of playing with it would be start noticing that when you breathe in, your shoulders rise. And when you breathe out, the shoulders fall.
3: So is it more like relaxing this. to breathe out? Pardon? Is it more relaxing to breathe out?
0: Oh, absolutely. Yes, taking air in. And in fact, uh, the easiest way to answer that question is the last breath that someone has is an out breath. They call it expire. Expiration. That's the last one. Why? Because the next in breath is just too much work. So yes, there is work on the in breath. To make sure that you're getting a lot of air. And then the out breath is the relax, letting it go, exhaust. So, from that perspective, it's easy to say yes, there's a little bit more work in the in breath than there is in the out breath. Let's pay attention to with that effort. Make sure that you're putting in the right effort to take a really good in breath. Because if you're taking a really good in breath, then naturally you'll be taking a long, easy out breath.
3: Yeah, I've really been trying to experiment with breathing and like really get relaxed. I I'm not sure if there's ways to breathe uh, in a more relaxed way. I mean I've heard of diaphragmatic breathing, if you've heard of that. That's belly breathing, by the way. hmm I I I don't I've been trying to practice that more.
0: Yes, every time that we remember, we could take a nice long, easy, relaxing breath. Every minute or two, you could take a long, deep, relaxing breath if you remember. And that's why we're building up this ability to remember, to keep remembering. Remember to what? To be awake, to be alert, to pay attention. Pay wise attention. Notice the body. Notice the feelings. Notice what's in the mind. Because if we know what's going on, then we can consciously make a change for the better. So, Anna, did we get these two words that you talked about from the beginning? Have we we challenged them? Have we gotten a good answer for you?
1: I think so. I will try to formulate and we'll
0: check it with you again. Yes, I think so. All right, yes. So acceptance has um a wide variety that you can barely tolerate something, but you say that you accept it. Okay. And then there's all the way in, uh, to the other side of acceptance in the sense of best friend. Become your own best friend. Accept yourself. Warts and all. Love yourself. This is the, uh, the way to, to look at it. And, and in that regard, the word acceptance actually doesn't have any of the kind of power that we really want to put into it. Affection might be a better word. That we don't just have an acceptance for it; we have an affection for it. We're willing to accept it as it is, wholeheartedly, warts and all.
1: But yeah, if we're gonna back to gonna be back to bully, we still need to experience awareness and acceptance. To dangerous, well, to dangerous bully in the forest.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It's I well, mean, kind of you have to because it's a very like limited so if you in any intolerable places you need still to accept to survive but it's just it's still from the same
0: all right well let's and use this kind
1: of it's another pole of the acceptance
0: right so you
1: can it as affection or you can take at acceptance at survival and both of them connected to awareness and then how we kind of balance it when we recover from the the bad one and all to right. move all
0: the way to the good one. Here's the way that we can talk about that, and that is imagine now that uh, that we recognize that there is a bully inside of us. What is that bully? It's the one who is afraid, who wants to dominate, so he doesn't feel afraid. So if we now can get in touch with our own bully inside, Normally, the way that the guy's going to do it is that he's going to bully his own internal bully. Because that's the habit he's in. Rather than accepting the bully in him. So so that when that bully comes up, he can say, Hi, old friend. I know you. You're the bully inside of me. And I can deal with things in awareness now rather than having to let that bully go out in rage. If I hate the bully in me, I'll wind up not wanting to see it, and then I'll miss it when I am a bully. But if I accept that I'm a bully, then I can, in fact, watch for that bully in me. And when the bully comes up, we can say, Oh, I've caught you now. There you are. And now we can make a change because we can see what is going on. So that's an important way about acceptance, that we have to accept the fact that we're not perfect. We have to accept that we've got a bunch of old rules and a bunch of old stored behavior that keeps coming back. It keeps coming back. And that if we don't like it, we'll ignore it. We will push it away, we'll lie to ourselves, we'll deceive ourselves, we'll be in a state of uh, delusion about it, denial, but if we're fully aware uh, and awake to all of our foibles and all of our b- bad stuff, then when it does come up, we can say, aha, I got you, I can see you. And so it it, it it winds up us becoming friends with ourselves rather than our own uh, let us say a strict taskmaster. We stop being our own bully and we start being our own lover. It's okay. It's all right. Yeah, you're a screw up. I love you. Screw up.
3: That actually really spoke to me because I was thinking about that earlier. I was like, wow, you know, I I really am imperfect and that's fucking. It's okay. I guess that's all right.
0: Yeah, that's okay. I'm I'm imperfect. I'm not perfect.
3: And also like there is like doubt, but we can become friends with doubt and things like that. Yeah.
0: You can say, "Uh Uh-huh, I see that doubt. I'm worried because I don't know something and I'm okay without it. I don't have to know that right now. All I have to do is what I know already to do. And that is just relax and enjoy. Even if there's a doubt. I can still be happy. I may not know it. If I need to know it, I'll find it later. Right now, I don't need to know it. I could be happy right now without knowing that. Now, the whole point about that is ultimately, every one of us is ignorant to the big thing. I mean, you, there's so much about physics and uh, the outer space and what our telescopes are doing, and there's still so, so much to learn that nobody knows yet. And then there's all the stuff that those people know that we don't know. Like an example would be a, a, the dean has a party and all of the faculty, especially all the older faculty, come to the party. And you, And you have like 30 professors in that room. But not one professor knows all the stuff that all the other 29 professors know. Every one of them only knows one 29th of all the knowledge in that room. And it's not possible for one person to know all the stuff that somebody else knows. We're going to remain ignorant. Get used to it. You're ignorant. You're not going to know everything. The question is, do we know enough? Enough what? Just enough to be happy. That's all we need to know is just enough to be happy. To be satisfied. All we then need to know is can I wake up and be here in this present moment? Can I check things out and see what's happening right now? I can make some choices. If I see uh, complaints or uh, doubt in my mind, I'm going to say, hey, I don't need to know that. I'm being okay. We can change our perspective, change our point of view, and I'm okay right now. No place to go and nothing to do. I don't have to go get that book out and look that topic up. I could just sit here and relax instead. So we can (laughs) practice that anyway, if we can see it. And if we don't like it, then we want to avoid it and we don't even see it clearly. And so we continue with all the old bad habits because we're not supposed to have bad habits. When we can accept our bad habits lovingly, then we can see them clearly and easily. And then we have choices about what we're gonna do with it. And at the end then, we congratulate ourselves for having made a good choice oh i can relax my neck ah that feels good i like that or i can take a deep breath and rely and relax and sigh out Ah, feels good i like that all right so this is the practice to be aware of what's going on to be to pay attention. So, anybody got any last questions? Anna, anything?
1: No, I'm thinking about pain in neck, which is very good. But I don't have questions. I just need to meditate.
0: Yes, yeah, just practice. Yeah, we can just practice being happy. All right. Well, I think that this is a good time to finish this conversation. Guys, this has been really great. Thank you for this opportunity. I really enjoy this, this kind of talk. So we'll see you soon. Avery, do you have any last comments, anything to say? I'll
3: be all right for now.
0: All right. Home, yes, please. you'll be all right right now. Good enough. I want to show you to show the book I'm reading now.
1: Let's look.
0: The Socratic method.
1: As you oh. told me, yeah. Just began, but very enjoying it all.
3: Yes, great. What's What's that book about? I'm curious.
1: It's about asking right it's questions and kind. Asking way.
0: the right questions. That's what it's about.
1: And kind way. Yes, mindful and kind way.
0: Right. You don't tell people what you know about them. You ask them to tell you about themselves. That's basically it. That's how Socrates taught and it's called the Socratic method. Because Socrates, when people would make statements about things, he would ask them a lot of questions about it. To get them to see that they were wrong, that they have to see it from themselves. You can't tell somebody they're wrong. Nobody wants to hear that. But you can ask them questions so that they can figure it out for themselves. And
1: never think that you are right. This is another big thing. You never, Socrates didn't think that
0: he is right. He was asking the questions. He was asking questions, right. I ask a lot of questions. Otherwise I'd look pretty stupid because I would be a know-it-all I'd already know and then I wouldn't ask questions so basically this is an important point and yet it's been relegated to just one little book on the top of the shelf up there and this is something that all of us should start to practice this is don't assume anything ask questions to other people Stop asking our own questions to ourselves and just relax. But when we're around other people, don't assume you know anything, ask questions. All right, so anyway, that's uh, uh, the Socratic method. Let's see this finish now. Thank, Thank you, you guys so much. Thank you. We'll see you again, Avery, soon. And you, Anna, I really enjoy your questions. Thank you. See you soon. All righty. Bye-bye.
1: Bye-bye.